my name is Chris Miller. I'm a member here at Remedy, and I've been asked to preach through um, 1 Corinthians 15. So if you would, stand with me with the forewarning that this passage takes six and a half minutes to read out loud. So if you can't stand for six and a half minutes, feel free to be seated. At the end of this chapter, I'll say um, the word of the Lord. And if you could respond by saying, thanks be to God. It's just a reminder that this is God's word and God is speaking to us and we should be thankful. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him, to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet." The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things into subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by the pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus 
If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it was written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I, think, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray real quick. God, we thank you that you are a God who comes down so that you can bring up. We ask that you send your spirit now down and bring us up into the truth of your word, and to the love of you. Transform us, renew our minds, allow us to walk out our faith in light of the resurrection of Christ, in light of our resurrection. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Things like, give us Barabbas, we have no king but Caesar, and his blood be on us, And on our children, echoed throughout the streets until finally Pilate delivered over Jesus to be crucified. The leather whips with bone and sharp shells tore at his flesh over and over 
and over again. Cries of terrible and unjust pain trembled out of the lips of God in the flesh. The mockery of soldiers filled his ears with shouts of, Tell me who hit you, O prophet, and hail, King of the Jews, as they put a blood-colored robe over his blood-covered body. They crowned the king of the universe with a crown made up of Adam's thick curse. The thorns ate into his head and washed in his blood. They placed upon him the tree of shame, weighing the weight of a man-crushing boulder, and he bore his own cross. But weak is the flesh, especially the flesh that is beaten nearly to death by scourging, mocking, and thorny crown. Jesus likely fell to the ground, and Simon of Cyrene was forced to help him carry the cross to the place of the skull. As they arrived, soldiers forced Jesus to lie down upon the rugged cross, and they nailed him to it, each hand and foot. And as they raised him up for all to see, salvation himself began to die. His chest vibrated at a disordered rhythm as his heart began to grow weaker in the chaos of crucifixion. The sun couldn't bear to watch the Son of God die as it hid itself behind the moon. Darkness reigned and stretched across the land, delighting in the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit was the last bit of life that Jesus could give. And with these words resounding, he bowed his head and went into the clutches of the last enemy, death. God died according to the flesh that day. Joseph and Nicodemus removed the nails from his hands and feet and carried the body of Jesus off the cross. They passed over the Passover so that they might partake in the real Passover lamb, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. They wrapped up the lamb in linen and shroud, a linen shroud with spices and laid his body in a newly cut grave. Pilate commanded the soldiers to watch over the tomb because the whispers and rumor of resurrection charged the Jews with an uneasy fear. A great stone was rolled over the mouth of Jesus' grave, sealing him in with death. There will be no resurrection, or so they thought. And in the fears of that day, we find the question that our passage is discussing. Can there be a resurrection? Will there be a resurrection? How will this happen? And so we're, we're going to look at this. Jesus' body lay inside, covered in linen, darkness, and death. So imagine for a second if this is where the gospel story stopped. Jesus is dead. He's in the grave. And that's where it stopped. Although the Corinthians believed in the resurrection of Christ, for whatever reason they decided that that doesn't mean that the resurrection of the dead, the saints in Christ, is going to happen. And so for Paul, these two things are so intimately linked that for Christ to be raised means we also will be raised. It's, it's, those are one thing. Christ's resurrection will indefinitely lead to our resurrection. And so in this passage, he's going through essentially three main parts of argument. The first one is going to be looking at, can we be sure? Can we be certain? Can our faith be rested upon something that is without doubt? The second part, he's going to look at some of the logical implications of Christ's resurrection. And since the Corinthians find themselves rejecting the resurrection, he's going to basically say, well, let's just let's take that. If that's what reality is, if Christ is still in the grave, then this is what's going to happen. This is what it means for your faith. He's then going to go on and he's going to talk about the new creation, the new resurrection body that we will have. What we sow is perishable. What we reap is imperishable. And then he's going to kind of end with 
a charge to stand firm in your faith and to realize that it's not in vain. So let's look at the first section. Uh, The first point that I think he's making, Paul, he says, the history of our faith is rooted in the story of his grace. The history of our faith is rooted in the story of his grace. And this is found in verses 1 through 11. And in this section, he does three quick things. He gives us surety. He gives us something to rest upon. He compares what a man without grace looks like to what a man with grace looks like. And then finally, at the very end, he basically says, this same grace that charged the apostles, this same grace that filled Paul and made him work harder than everyone, that same grace is the same grace that causes us to believe and to trust and to rest in the promises of Christ, crucified and resurrected. And so the first part, verses 1 through 8, the gospel story is just broken down into probably in all the Bible, this is the simplest explanation of the gospel. The death of Christ on behalf of our sins, according to the scriptures. His burial and his resurrection, according to scriptures. And in this passage, he gives us two things that we can rest our faith upon and know that we can be sure that we have trusted well. The first thing would be found in that phrase, according to scriptures. These things that Christ went through, his death, his burial, his resurrection, this wasn't something that just randomly happened, but this is something that God, from the very beginning of time, had in his mind as a plan. He wrote it in th- throughout the scriptures. And so in the Old Testament, you could look at passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 on the death. If you read Psalm 22, I mean, there's just, there's stuff in that that can only be applied to Christ's death. Soldiers mocking and tearing his clothes in two and, and gambling for his clothes. Uh, Psalm 16 about the resurrection. So thousands of years before Jesus took up the cross and died, and was resurrected, the Bible already talked about it. Christ is going to die. Christ is going to be resurrected. But on top of those scriptures, you know, that's the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. Paul, the New Testament wasn't completely finished during his time, but he, you know, we have the New Testament finished. And in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in particular, what we have is literally written down eyewitness testimony of what Jesus taught, how he lived, how he died, and how he was raised from the grave. We can be sure that our faith is well-placed. God has had this plan for thousands of years, and he's told us in his scriptures. The second thing that Paul points out is Christ appeared to people. You know, this isn't just like, you know, we're just saying this story and hoping you trust in us, but over 500, at least over 500 people had seen the resurrected Christ. And even more so, most of those people went on to proclaim his resurrection and push it even to the point of death. I mean, during the reign of Nero, Christians were hung on pikes and lit on fire. Paul, uh, Peter was crucified upside down according to tradition. These people weren't just like saying some story that they, you know, hey, I'm going to try to trick everybody into believing this. They were willing to die excruciating deaths for this story. We can be sure. This is an eyewitness testimony that's being handed out to us and, and just laid in our laps, believe, trust these people. So look at verses 9 through 10. He kind of takes a little excursion. Verse 9 in the Greek starts with the word I. And that's very important because in verse 10, it starts with the word grace. And there's these great comparison between these two verses. Verse 9 is 
Paul according to I. So when I is in charge, when Paul is in charge, this is what he looks like. And then verse 10 is when, when the grace of God is in charge through Paul, this is what he looks like. And so in verse 9, he get, kind of gives t- three descriptors. He's the least of the apostles. He's unworthy to be called an apostle. He's a destroyer of the church or persecutor of the church. Behold the power of I. And maybe we could think back to our own lives, maybe even this morning when I was in charge versus the grace of God. It leads to destruction. And so look at verse 10 because that's the precious promise. Grace. It starts with grace. And look at the descriptors here. I am who I am. Who is Paul? Suffered many things on behalf of the gospel. Planted many churches. Made many disciples. Was stoned. Was shipwrecked. Was imprisoned. All these great things. All the sermons. All the preaching. All the evangelism. All the great works. All the healings. All the casting out of demons that Paul did. That was not Paul, but the grace of God. And then the second descriptor that it gives of a person who's influenced by the grace of God. I worked harder than all of them, all the other apostles. The least of the apostles worked harder than all the apostles. But not I, rather the grace of God. So now he's going to, in verse 11, he's going to bring all these verses together. If you didn't look, but verse 2 ends with this, unless you believed in vain, right? We're going to have this great salvation, and then he ends with this cliffhanger, unless you believed in vain. And I mean, this drives me crazy because it's like, okay, I know I have faith, but did I believe in vain? There's There's this potential for faith to believe to be in vain. And what he's doing here is he's going to assure the Corinthians that they have not believed in vain in verse 11. In verse 11, he basically says, whether it was I who's preaching or them, the other apostles, so we preached and so we believed. And in the Greek, that word so simply means in thus manner. And it's referring back to verse 10. It wasn't I, but it was the grace of God. In the same manner that I worked harder than all of them, I and they preached. It was the grace of God that was preaching to you all through us. And then also, and this is the hopeful part, If you believed, in the same manner you believed. It wasn't just this willy-nilly faith, but it was the grace of God motivating and creating this faith in you. Commentator David Garland says it like this. The Corinthians received this word from the least of all the apostles, so that the same grace that had made him a most improbable apostle worked also to make them believers. The bottom line is, this grace intimately connects us to Christ and him crucified and resurrected. And we can be sure, because if his grace is here, it will work. It's not not just dependent upon us. And so we can rest assured in that. So Paul moves into this second kind of bigger section, and I'm going to title it Resurrection Logic 101, because it's like a logic class. He's giving all these like implications. If A is this, then B is this. If A is this, then B is this. And so there's five things that he's going to go through. And for the sake of time, we're going to list them and just briefly talk about them. Um, Number one, the general resurrection of the dead is dependent upon Christ being raised from the dead and vice versa. And you can find this in verses 12 through 13 and also verse 16. And just simply put, if Christ is a real man, if he really became a real human being, 
then for him to be raised up, you cannot deny that other human beings cannot be raised up. To do so would be denying Christ's resurrection. Um, Leon Moore says it this way, Since Christ was genuinely human and died a human death, if men are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. Humanity is so tied to Christ that to deny his resurrection is to deny any hope of our resurrection. And to deny our resurrection is to deny that God had the ability to raise him. Because he, he didn't do something especially a special just because he was the Christ. He was a man just like us. He was a human being. So let's look at the second implication if there is no resurrection. The purpose or value of our proclamation of the gospel or sharing of the gospel is dependent upon Christ being raised from the dead. Verses 14 through 15 is where you find this. And basically this is going back and taking some themes that we saw in the first part, preaching and believing, and saying that, well, guess what? If Christ isn't resurrected, preaching's in vain, faith is in vain. And we'll, we'll tag on to faith in a second, but let's focus on preaching. Not only is our preaching in vain, but Paul goes on to say that we're found misrepresenting God. Because Paul taught Christ was dead, Christ was buried, Christ was raised. And now, who raised him? Paul taught that God raised him. And so if he's teaching this, but Christ isn't really raised, Paul is actually a liar. He's, he's lying to, about who God is. And then, you know, so kind of in summary, if we look at this and take verses 1 through 11 and tag it along with this implication, the Bible can't be trusted because the Bible taught us that Christ would die and would be raised. The church can't be trusted because the church, the historical witness of the church taught us that Christ died and was raised. Our preaching is lying because Christ isn't really raised. Those are the implications if Jesus isn't raised that Paul's pointing out. It's almost a cruelty that we would go to other people and preach to them the gospel because what we're asking them to do, submit yourself to this Lord, kill sin, Take the hard path, the path that's marked by carrying a cross. But guess what? At the end of this path, it just ends like everybody's path. You die. It's cruel. And so Paul's pointing out, like, guys, how can you deny the resurrection of the dead? If you do that, just realize you're denying all these other things. You're undermining Scripture. You're undermining the church. You're undermining preaching of the gospel. And so let's look at the third thing. The third implication of if there is no resurrection of the dead, the effect or value of our faith is completely dependent upon Christ being raised from the dead. This is found in verse 14 and 17. Verse 17, we find the phrase, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Tagging on to it, of that last one where it said, your faith is in vain, he's just drawing that out a little bit more. What does it mean that your faith is in vain? It's futile. It's useless. It's, it's, there's no purpose for it. And then the next phrase, you're still in your sins. In, that, in the Greek, in the New Testament, there's no conjunction between those two statements. There's no and. And so it's your sin, or sorry, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Because Paul wants you to put those two things up in front of you and equate them. What's the point of faith? Well, when Christ is raised from the dead, our faith destroys our sins. It takes us out of our sin. It proclaims Christ's righteousness in our place, and it proclaims our sin in his place. 
And so faith actually takes us out of our sins. But if you remove the resurrection, you're still in your sins. John Calvin says it this way, For although Christ, by his death, atoned for our sins, that they might no more be imputed to us in the judgment of God, and has crucified our old man, that its lusts might no longer reign in us, and in fine, has by death destroyed the power of death and the devil himself, Yet there would be none of these things if he had not, by rising again, come off victorious. Hence, if the resurrection is overthrown, the dominion of sin is set up. If there's no resurrection, we're still in our sins. There's no hope. Number four, the reversal of what Adam did at Genesis 3, so the fall of man, The reversal of the fall is dependent upon Christ being raised from the dead. And you find this in verses 20 through 22. Paul just now starts to begin to allude to the creation account, Genesis 1 through 3. And this is important because for the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to heavily rely upon what happened in Genesis 1 through 3. So the first kind of reliance is, you know, Adam died, right? Through one man came death. And we all know kind of the story. He disobeyed God. He ate the fruit according to the voice of his wife who was deceived by the serpent. And thus he sinned for the first time and brought death to all of humanity. And so Christ is going to take Adam and he's going to put Christ right next to him. And he's going to say, let's compare the two. If Adam brought death, if one man could bring death, is it that hard to believe that one man could bring resurrection from the dead? If in Adam all die, is it really hard, is it a jump to say that in this man who brings the resurrection, if in Christ we all live, we all have resurrection. And so he puts those two side by side so that we might compare them. Um, And so basically the bottom line is everyone who's in Adam will end in death. Everyone who's in, in Christ, yes, they will die. But like Christ, they will resurrect. And... Now let's take it with the logic of the Corinthians. There's no resurrection, right? That's what they're saying. If there's no resurrection, you miss out on the Christ part. There's only one choice. There's only one path. There's only one road that you can take. In Adam, all die. And so the reversal of what Adam did in Genesis 3 is dependent upon it. Verses 23 through 28, um, I wanted to just kind of mention two things from that. Because basically those verses are just drawing out what does the reverse of what Adam did look like. So just the first thing, if you think to Genesis 1, you had God on top. He created mankind, man and woman, as image bearers and as rulers over all of creation. And then you had animals, fish, birds, um, etc. under them. In Genesis 3, you get the reverse. It's completely flip-flopped. The beast of the field, the craftiest of the beasts of the field, the serpent, he comes, he deceives Eve. Eve then offers the fruit to Adam, and Adam, you know, Adam's not deceived, but he just says, okay. He intentionally knows what he's doing, rebels against God, and sins, eats the fruit. And so now you have Adam, and then God is placed at the bottom in the authority chain. And so you have this great reversal of the flow of, of how God designed things and created things. And what, this, what these verses basically describe is how Christ, when he became a man, his ultimate mission is to restore it back to the way it was. 
So what he's going to do is he comes down, he dies, he resurrects, and now he rules. And things, authorities, principalities are being destroyed and placed under his feet. And then he goes on to mention that eventually even the last enemy, death, will be destroyed and placed under his feet. And in that moment, when all things are under Christ, what's he going to do? Rule over the universe? No. He goes to his father. He kneels before him. And he lays himself and all things at his feet. Thus restoring God, man, creation. All things. And so the great reversal of what Adam did is dependent upon Christ being resurrected and us being resurrected. The second thing, just real quickly with these verses, death is the last enemy. And I don't want us to gloss over that. We all have been, in some ways or shape or form, touched by death. We might even be able to say, if we look at the world, if we look at our lives, we might even be able to convince ourselves that death is still reigning fully. But in this promise... He is the last enemy, and he will be destroyed. He will be destroyed. It's not, it's not in doubt. Death has already been dealt a mortal blow. Death is dying, and one day will be completely subjected to Christ. So let's look at this last resurrection logic 101 implication. Um, this is number five. Making sense of Christian sacrifice and lifestyle is dependent upon Christ being raised from the dead. Verses 30 through 34, and then also going back in 18 and 19. So basically Paul here is saying, if there's no resurrection of the dead, why on earth am I risking my life? Why am I going through hardship and trials? Why am I constantly putting forth this message that people are throwing rocks at me over, that people are throwing me in prison for, that I'm being shipwrecked for, why would I do that if there's no resurrection from the dead? If I'm just going to die and that's it, that's the end of it. So what did, what did I get out of that? I got a lot of whippings, I got a lot of stonings, I got a lot of shipwrecks, imprisonments, I got all this great stuff, right? And he's basically saying, why would I do that? Why would a Christian do it? So let's just look at the life of a Christian. A couple of things that should characterize us. We're trying to put to death our fleshly desires. Our lives are marked by the cross. Um, We're trying to take this gospel to the nations, whether they like it or not. We're we're also being hated in, in many times, right? And maybe in America we can say that we're not being hated as much, but it's still it's still generally looked down upon to act like a Christian and to speak like a Christian in public places in America. And so why would we do these things if in the end we just go to the grave? That's what Paul's essentially saying here. And he, he quotes Isaiah twenty two thirteen. This is how we ought to act if there's no resurrection. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And Isaiah 22 gives us a little bit of context for what Paul's thinking. In Isaiah 22, God is prophesying to the Israelites that Assyria is coming. And Assyria is going to wage war against them. And essentially, Assyria is going to take them into captivity. And that's ultimately what happens. And this is during King Hezekiah's run. And so during this time, Isaiah is listing off all the things that the Israelites were doing in preparation for the coming judgment of God. Um, so I listed them off. They, they prepared weapons 
They got all the weapons out and made sure everybody was fortified and had weapons. They fixed the breaches in the city. They counted all the houses to make sure that they would get the right quota of soldiers to defend the land. They fortified the walls, and they even made extra reservoirs of water within the city walls because once they're under invasion, they have to you know, survive inside the walls for however many long. But Isaiah's not really interested in what they did. He points out something they didn't do. Why didn't you turn to God? Assyria is not just like some nation that decided, I'm going to go invade the people of God. But God actually told them, Assyria, I've raised them up to judge you because you are sinning against me. And notice they're doing all these preparations for the battle. And then afterwards, instead of putting on sackcloth, rending their clothes, putting on ash over their head, bowing down and repenting to God and saying, God, forgive us for our sins, have mercy. They're eating, they're drinking, because they know, live it up, because once Assyria gets here, tomorrow we die. And Paul places that as the context for the Corinthians. They're doing all these things. They're eating and drinking. Their lives are more characterized and marked by eating and drinking than it is living sacrificially and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. And Paul's saying, this should not be so. Now Paul's going to do another quote, only this time it's not from the Bible. Uh, This is in verses 33 and 34. He quotes Menander, who wrote a comedy called Thias. It's an ancient Greek comedy. And he quotes this comedy, and it says this, essentially. It's a proverb. Evil company ruins good character. Evil company ruins good character. And it's a well-known proverb. So, like, everybody, he didn't say, hey, this is Menander. He just said the proverb everybody would recognize. It would be like me saying, may the force be. There you go. You got it. Right? We all know where that's coming from. If we don't, then we've been living under a rock. Um, so Menander's been quoted, but what's interesting is the placement of this quote. Evil company corrupts good character. Why? We're not talking about company here. We're not talking about the Corinthians hanging out with the pagans and being influenced by the pagans to be bad. We've been talking about a certain belief, a certain conversation, a certain s- statement. We've been talking about... No, the the dead aren't raised. That's what the Corinthians have been doing, and that's what Paul's been talking about. And so why on earth, all of a sudden, is he saying good company corrupts moral characters? The word company can be translated also just as equally as conversation or intercourse. Conversation. So Gordon Fee, commentator Gordon Fee says this. In that case, it would mean here something like this. Evil conversations such as those that deny the resurrection of the dead can only have a corrupting effect on your good character. And so we get a deep, I think a deep warning, especially for our time, because I don't know about y'all, but I, I really love having conversations about, oh, you know, differing interpretations, and what do you think this means? And so to list off a few conversations that I've had like with students uh, at my school when we talk about creation, is Adam a real person? I've heard that one, right? Or is he just a myth? Or was the earth created in a literal seven days? Or is it day age or gap theory? Or um, was there really a serpent? Or was that like just symbolic? And so conversations like these can be had. And I'm not saying that necessarily these are bad conversations. But heed Paul's warning here. Conversations aren't just these neutral things. But they're like companions. They come alongside of us. They can corrupt us. Or they can reinforce us. They can reinforce good character or they can corrupt good character. And so conversations matter. 
conversations can reinforce good character or ruin good character. And that's kind of Paul's point here. And then he's going to give examples. Look at verse um, 34. Wake up from your drunken super as it is right. Do not go on sinning, for some of you, some of some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He gives kind of two examples. First, this conversation had led the Corinthians to fall, in, fall into sleep, such as like a drunken stupor, to where they're sinning. They're not fighting sin. They're just going on sinning. And Paul's basically like, wake up. Don't go on sinning. Kill sin, right? Live sacrificially. Live sacrificially. And the second thing, and this is kind of a backhanded one, like it's a little bit harder to see, and it can be kind of seen as two different things, and I'll give both, but there are people with no knowledge of God. And then he adds this little comment. I say this to your shame. Either he's talking about Corinthian citizens outside of the church who have never heard the gospel, who have never been told about God, who don't know what good character is, who don't know what uh, it means to follow Christ. They are sitting out in the city limits and they have no knowledge of God. And so what are the Corinthians doing? Because of their resurrection talk, not only are they drunkenly in a stupor, not killing sin, but they're also not proclaiming God's witness to the city. The other thing that it could be, it could just be Corinthians within the church. It doesn't necessarily have to be Corinthians outside of the church. There are people inside of the church who need more knowledge of God. They need to know who God is. And because of this, um, because of this conversation about the resurrection of the dead, and because of this attachment to there is no resurrection of the dead, the Corinthians aren't sharing about God with the church. Either way, Paul is saying this to our shame. And so I think, you know, when I was reading through this, it just, a hard question came up for myself, and I just wanted to share it with everybody. The hard question essentially, you know, I acknowledge, I claim that Christ has been resurrected. I also believe that the resurrection of the dead, like I believe that when Christ comes back, he will raise up all who are in him. But I wonder, this is the question, is my life characterized more by eating and drinking than it is by killing sin and bearing witness to Christ before others, sacrificing our life and time? So is my life characterized more by eating and drinking, and don't get this wrong, like eating and drinking is not wrong, but if like your life is marked by just eating and drinking, just celebrating, enjoying, um, entertaining, whatever it might be, if that's it, right? And so the question is again, is my life marked more by eating and drinking than killing sin and spreading the gospel to others who need it? That's the question. And so don't miss this. We can mentally say Christ is raised from the dead. We can mentally believe that we will be raised from the dead. But what are we practically doing? A person who believes in God but doesn't do things in light of that belief is a practical atheist. A Christian who believes in the resurrection of Christ but doesn't believe, or sorry, a, a Christian who believes in the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead but doesn't walk in light of that is a practical Corinthian. We want to make sure that we're not practical Corinthians, but we're practical walkers in light of um, the resurrection of Christ. So now Paul moves on to his third section. And this is where it gets a little more hopeful, a little more cheery. The resurrection is a lens through which we are, or sorry, through which we see the new creation and are filled with hope. 
verses 35 through 49. The resurrection is a lens through which we see the new creation and are filled with hope. And so he's going to go right into the Genesis 1 through 3 creation accounts. And it, it all starts from this question. And it seemingly was asked with sarcasm or with doubt because Paul kind of responds a little harshly. The question is essentially, with what kind of body will we have in the resurrection? And Paul basically responds and says, you foolish person. So they weren't sincere in this question, but Paul is sincerely going to answer anyways. And so the question is, what kind of body are we going to have in the resurrection? And he begins with kind of a farming or gardening analogy. And I think there's a touch of irony here. Because remember, he is going to just talk about Genesis 1 through 3. And what is Genesis 1 through 3? It's a garden. It's <laughs> so there's a little bit of irony here. And, what is, and this is the lens, okay? So he's going to show us the first creation in its glory. And he's going to compare it to the new creation in all of its glory. And he's basically going to say the, first, the glory of the first creation, the old creation, does not compare to the glory of the new creation. And so here's kind of this lens that he gives us, this gardening analogy. What we sow is not the body that, we, that will be raised. So what we're putting into the ground now through killing sin and the spreading of the gospel is not what's going to be raised. Or just in essence, we are going to have a vastly different resurrection body than what we are used to when we think about bodies. Verses 38 through 41 go kind of backwards through the creation account. Day 6, day 5, day 4. Day 6, he talks about the flesh of man is of one kind. And then he goes back, the flesh of animals is of one kind. Then he goes to day 5, the flesh of birds and the flesh of fish is of one kind. Then he gives us this kind of middle pivot statement of the glory of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly bodies is of another kind. Then he backs all the way into day four. The glory of the sun is of one kind, the glory of the moon is of one kind, and the glory of the stars are of one kind, and each star differs in glory. And so he's kind of backing us through this account. And what he's doing here with this structure is he's setting up a, a compare and contrast. Compare the heavenly to the earthly. Compare the lower to the higher. Notice here that in the words for animals, uh, man, flesh, or sorry, fish, not flesh, fish, birds, the word flesh is used. For sun, stars, and moon, the word glory is used, or radiance. And so it's this idea of if we are from earth, we are lower in radiance, we're lower in glory, but look at the sun and how it's radiant. And Paul's wanting us to see that there's a differentiation in our creation of glory. And that differentiation is just like the old creation to the new creation. So in the same way that the sun is more radiant, vastly more radiant than our bodies, our new bodies, our resurrection bodies will be vastly more radiant than our old bodies. That's essentially what Paul is saying. And David Garland kind of sums it up this way. The below is characterized by the use of the term flesh. The above is characterized by the use of the term glory. This creates a hierarchy of opposites. Earthly, below, lesser. Heavenly, above, greater. And so just kind of keep that in mind as we keep going through. Verses 42 through 44, he's going to show us that difference, the contrast. Here's the lower, here's the higher. You sowed it this way, here's how it's going to be raised. You sowed it perishable. It was sowed perishable. It was 
fading away. It was perishing. It was raised in perishable. You sowed it in dishonor. It was raised in glory. You sowed it in weakness. It was raised in power. It was sowed as a natural body. And it's raised as a spiritual body. And so you get this great contrast between the two, resurrect, the, the two bodies. The, the body that we're sowing and the body that's going to be raised by Christ. Paul beckons us to look at creation and see that there's going to be this vast contrast between the old and new creation. And be filled with hope there. To be filled that though we feel perishable now, though we feel weak and sick now, one day we'll trade all that in for imperishability and power, right? And glory, not dishonor. And spiritual body, a body that's characterized by being filled with the Spirit of God. That's no longer needing to strive in relationship with God, but just as naturally in relationship with God. C.S. Lewis, I like quoting him, um, He says it this way in one of his Narnia books, The Last Battle. And basically what happened is all the Narnians are passing through this closet and they're passing from the old Narnia into the new Narnia. And he says this, The eagle is right, said Lord Diggory. The Narnia you were thinking of, it was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. The unicorn summed it up what everybody was feeling. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. For this second part, verses 45 through 49. So if the first one was compare and contrast the old creation. The glory of the old creation does not compare to the new creation. He's now going to put the heads of each of those creations The glory of Adam does not compare to the glory of Christ. And he's going to kind of compare those two. And so he starts off with a quote from Genesis 2-7. And I I love this part. This is like my favorite part. So if you want to like just remember this, this is my favorite part. Maybe it's not yours. He quotes Genesis 2-7, but then he adds a clause to it. And because that's what Paul's been doing this whole time. He's quoting to us this story that we're familiar with, creation. But then he's adding to us this new story of new creation that is going to be so much more glorious than that old story that we read in Genesis 1-3. through And so he's going to add to it. So here's the first clause, and it comes from Genesis 2-7. The first man, Adam, became a living being. And this is what he adds. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam became a living being, referencing that time when God breathes into the dirt, forms a body and breathes into the dirt, and Adam became a living soul. The new Adam, the last Adam, will be a life-giving spirit. And so, the first thing that we can kind of see here is that Adam is described by a word, dust. This word, dust, keeps coming up. And dust, again, Genesis 1-3, through 3, it, just, it just makes you think about it. Adam is created from the dust. Second, dust actually means earth. Adam is a creature of earth. And then third, in Genesis 3, part of Adam's curse, from the dust you came, into the dust you shall return in death. From the dust you came, into the dust you shall return. So Adam, his country is dust. His world is dust. Where he belongs is dust. Christ, he belongs to heaven He doesn't bear the image of dust, but he bears the image of heaven. And so even though Christ 
dies and goes into the dust, he doesn't stay there because that's not where he belongs. He didn't come from the dust. He came from heaven. And like Adam, who came from the dust and must return to it, Christ came from heaven and must return to it. The dust couldn't hold him. Death could not hold him. He resurrects back to life, and then he goes to heaven. And then there's this great promise here that, like in the same way that we bear the image of the man of dust, so also shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. So that just basically means this. We're exchanging images. Yeah, we'll go to the dust, but because we're bearing Christ's image, just like Christ, the dust could not hold us. We will also resurrect. And so another way of kind of saying, it, saying this is basically, though we will go to the dust, we're not going to be from the dust. Though we, sh- um, though we shall go to dust and death, dust is not our home, but heaven is our home. Though the dust is lower, and that is where we're going to go, we shall be resurrected higher. And we might also say along with the unicorn, right? This is my real country. This is where I really belong. This is my home. And that's the great promise that's given to us in these verses. And so Paul beckons us to look through the lenses or the spectacles, the glasses of the resurrection. Look at the earth. Look at creation through the resurrection and see the glory that awaits you. When you, when you feel joy, when you feel happiness, when you feel when you're touched by death and you feel that it's completely unnatural, all those things are, you, are is God using those things to point us to the fact that we don't belong here. This is not our home. We belong to somewhere where death does not reign. We belong to somewhere where glory is filled and God is there face to face with us. So Paul's going to end in verses 50 through 58 with some application, although I think there's tons of application that we can get from everything, every one of these 58 verses. Death will be swallowed, so do the Lord's work and stand firm. Death will be swallowed, so do the Lord's work and stand firm. Verses 50 through 58. I've kind of got just three applications, if you will. First one, hope and walk in light of the resurrection. Hope and and walk. Be filled with hope and walk out in light of the resurrection. When you're thinking about what you're doing through the day, run it through that lens, that, that filter of am, am I helping so toward my resurrection or am I just, you know, wasting time? Am I being marked mainly by eating and drinking or am I doing something that will be everlasting, will be raised and perishable, will be raised in glory? So hope and walk in light of the coming um, resurrection and verses 50 through 52 in the twinkling of an eye will be changed it's going to be sudden when christ comes back in the twinkling of an eye we shall be transformed so walk in that light the second one our resurrection is as sure as christ's rule our resurrection is sure as christ's rule now you might be like where are you getting that from Uh, Verse 25, all the way back in verse 25, there's a word must. And this word must is only used three times in all 58 of these verses. Once in verse 25, two times in verse 53. So I'll read verse 25. For Jesus must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 53 says this. For the perishable's body must put on the imperishable. The mortal body must put on immortality. 
There's a reason why Paul reserves that language for those two um, verses. Because kind of like at the very beginning, we are so identified with Christ that it's hard to distinguish between his resurrection and ours. The only thing that distinguishes between it is really time. And so just like Christ must be reigning right now, you must put on imperishability and must put on immortality when in the twinkling of an eye. Third thing, last thing, in light of the surety of his promise, in light of the certainty of his promise, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is found in verse 58. And the reason is, he basically states, your work in the Lord is not in vain. And it's a return all the way back to our vanity theme. In the beginning, we were asking the question, have we believed in vain? Paul assured us we haven't because it's the same grace that has touched the apostle that's touched us. We can be sure that our faith's not in vain. Here he exchanges the word faith with work. And I don't want you to overlook that. Just like Paul worked harder than all the apostles, the grace of God through faith makes us work in the Lord. And that work, just like our faith, it's not in vain. It will be raised up in perishable. It will be raised up in glory. It will be raised up everlasting, spiritual um, worship to God. And so I'd encourage you all to not only think about the resurrection, but start thinking about things that you can do that show that you're walking in light of it. What are things that I can do that demonstrate I believe that I'm going to be resurrected when Christ comes back? So in conclusion, we had left Jesus in the grave. And we know that that's not true. That's what the Corinthians thought. But that's not what's true. A great stone was rolled over the mouth of Jesus, his grave, sealing him in with death. Jesus' body laid inside, covered in linen, darkness, and death. On the third day, the stone began to roll away at the command of, the great, of a great angel of light. The Roman guards were struck with terror and fell down as if dead men. The body inside of the linen shroud began to move. Jesus rose, full of life and conqueror of death. And he left the grave, he left the dust, never to return. That very same day, Mary, mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene went to see the tomb. As they got there, they found it with no stone covering the mouth. The angel of light was still there and looked at them and said, Do not be afraid, Jesus, or sorry, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here For he has risen as he said. Jesus made many appearances to his disciples before his ascension. One time he appeared uh, to the twelve, but especially for Thomas. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Thomas touched the risen Lord and replied, the same reply that I think we all should have. You are the Lord of me and the God of me. May we all reply in this way. He is risen. Father, I pray that you would just fill us with hope. Allow us to dwell on the resurrection of Christ and our coming resurrection. That we don't kill sin and we don't spread the gospel needlessly, but there is value behind that. We are inviting others to come into relationship with the living God, the man marked by the image of heaven. There is value in killing sin because we will be raised imperishable. God, allow us to see that glory and to be fueled by it as we work hard for you in your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.